Bible, you can open to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be camping out in that chapter today. We're continuing in our series called Nameless Stories of Grace for the Brokenhearted. We are looking at all the women, well not all of them, but some select stories from both the Old Testament and the New Testament of women who didn't get a name, but they got a great story. And those stories have been commemorated for us in Holy Scripture. And today we're going to be looking at a woman uh, who was completely and utterly alone. And I want to describe that to you. But before I do that, I want to say thank you to every one of you who have been praying for Carrie and I. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I have just sensed the Holy Spirit's power and his presence through your prayers. And I want to thank you for that. I also want to thank you for your cards, the innumerable, just the stack of cards and notes that you guys have given us. I was just going through a big stack of them this last week, and I felt... God's spirit just wash over me, and I'm so thankful to belong to a caring church family, and this is what baptism is all about. Baptism doesn't save you, but that baptism is a way for the saved, the person who has committed their life to Jesus by faith. It is a way for the saved to say to the entire world, look, I am a member of this family. This is my church. This is my home, and it is a declaration of our entrance into the family of God. So we just saw the gospel displayed right before us, and I'm just so, so grateful for that. Um, I want to tell you a story today. It's a transforming encounter about a woman who was nameless, but her story is profound. She is suffering from a horrible physical condition. She has reached the end of her resources. She has reached the end of her rope, frankly, She's gone to faith healers, every shaman and faith healer she can find. And she has shelled out a lot of denarii, a lot of money to these Jewish quack doctors for the miracles and remedies. And she has gotten nothing, nothing in return. We're going to pick up the story here in verse uh, 21. 24, I'm sorry. It says, a large uh, crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus from Nazareth, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed immediately. Her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering at once she realized that power, uh, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? And the disciples say, you see the people crowding against you? And his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing uh, what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. What a powerful, powerful story. And I want to make a few observations that will help us uh, this morning to understand the nature of faith because I think that her story captures so brilliantly, so perfectly, the nature of true faith. First of all, we note in the story that the woman was greatly suffering. She was greatly suffering. 
Now, how was she suffering? So we see some clues in the text. It says that she had constant bleeding. It said that she had spent everything that she had. And it says that she was suffering from the care of many doctors. That's an interesting phrase. So firstly, she was suffering physically. She was suffering in her body. The word that Mark uses here in the Greek is the word that we would translate menorrhagia. Menorrhagia is a menstrual condition that is intermittent, but it is prolonged and it brings great suffering to the woman who is going through it. And so she, for 12 years, for a dozen years, she has been suffering with this physical condition. And this condition was referred to also as a hemorrhagia. And Mark chooses that, those words very carefully here because he wants to let us know that this woman, this woman is experiencing extreme, prolonged physical discomfort. Next, we note that she was suffering socially and emotionally. How do we know that? We modern readers have a difficult time really looking at this verse in the light of its own cultural context. This was a ritual purity culture. And in a ritual purity culture, almost Everything can make you ceremonially unclean, and especially if you have a physical condition. So if you are a leper and you have flaky skin, all you flaky people in the winter, lepers, you go to the leper colony, (laughs) right? You have a little blemish on your face, leper colony for you. So almost everything in this world can actually make you off limits. And if you are ritually unclean, as this woman was perpetually for. 12 years, then what that means is you cannot touch your husband. You can't touch your children. If you do, you defile them. You can't go to the local marketplace and shop, especially if it's busy, because if you accidentally rub against somebody, they have to go through what's called a ritual purity bath. Not like the one we just did, but uh, what's called a ritual bath uh, or a baptism. And so there are any number of ways in which you could contaminate the people around you. So she is suffering not only physically, her physical suffering has caused her great emotional and social uh, isolation, which brings with it a psychological cost. She can't go to the feasts of of, uh, the Jews. She can't celebrate their holidays with them. She can't celebrate their festivals or national celebrations. She can't go to synagogue on Friday night. She can't go to synagogue and sit there and be with the women and study Torah and listen to it being taught to her because she might accidentally touch another person while she's in this condition. She also suffered financially. The subtext underneath the text is this, that she had a husband. Why do we know that? Because she had money. In the first century, if you were a woman, you didn't have money because you couldn't hold a job or you couldn't own property. So in the first century, she must have a husband because she has exhausted her family's resources trying to find a doctor somewhere who would give her a remedy that would heal her. And so she has exhausted her family resources financially, all of her personal wealth, savings accounts emptied, Uh, any net profit that they get from their crops or whatever their family business was spent on her and her condition Now, in terms of their reputation, what you need to know is that a doctor was not considered in the first century much higher than a tax collector. They weren't. And you're going to find out why. They kind of considered these folks unscrupulous, money-grubbing quacks. 
Now, if you had this exact condition, here's what the Babylonian Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, uh, which is a Jewish document, and it was written, it records or codifies the laws that Jesus and the disciples and all of their people lived under in his day. So in the Babylonian Talmud, this is what the rabbinic medicinal aid uh, would be prescribed for this, this condition. And here's what it says. It says, let them, the sick, procure three Persian onions. So you got to get Persian onions. You have to boil them in wine. You have to make her, the sick woman, drink it and say to her, cease your discharge. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what the Talmud says. If this does not work, she is to sit, this is what it says, I'm not kidding, I, I literally copied this out of the Talmud. She is to sit at a crossroads, hold a, cu- a cup of wine in her hand, and a man comes up behind her and frightens her and says, cease your discharge. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, she is to take a handful of spices, a handful of saffron, a handful of fenugreek, boiled in wine again. She is to drink that wine, and the physician is to come up behind her and say, cease your discharge. And if that doesn't work, she is to take 60 pieces of sealing clay of a wine vessel, let it be brought to her, smeared on her eyes and all over her face, and then scream at her, cease your discharge. (laughs) And if that doesn't work, this one will. This one will. Finally, she is to fetch a small barley grain from the dung pile of a white mule. (laughs) Do not clean it. Eat it. Okay, I was, uh, you guys are wanting to throw up in your mouth a little bit now. And she's to keep it in her stomach for three days, and then the discharge will for sure cease. But only after you say, cease your discharge. <laughs> you see how ridiculous this quackery was. They, it, this was a pre-scientific culture. They did not know anything about uh, germs. They didn't know how, that germs, uh, you could get rid of them by washing your hands. They know, knew nothing about this. So they did not have any medicinal aids or medicinal cures that actually worked for her. And so now she has exhausted her family fortune trying to find every rabbi and every doctor to give her some cure to heal her. And the stories that she has heard about Jesus from Nazareth are mind-boggling. Jesus speaks with a word and the dead come out of their graves. Jesus lays his hand on that flaky skin leper and that leper is healed. I mean, just just these unimaginable stories have been filling, filling her ears. Mark's text says that she suffered greatly. She suffered not only from the physical condition, condition, but it literally says she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. The very people that she trusted to heal her and help her were not worthy of her trust. When my kids were really little, I think Carly was about, just about two years old, and I could fit all of them in a wagon and just like pull them down the sidewalk. And I loved those days, those were so fun. But I used to have this big old yard cart. Anybody got a green yard cart that you bought from Home Depot or something? And I used to have this big old yard cart in my backyard. And uh, they would sit in it and pretend to drive or fly it like it was a plane. And one day they were all sitting in it and they said, Daddy, pull us, give us a ride. I said, yeah, okay, let's do that. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> and so I picked it up and I just started walking around my yard. Now my yard in Post Falls, uh, Idaho, uh, was kind of sloped down toward my chain link fence. 
So I would do a, kind of a circle, a revolution around the yard. We'd get back up to the top, and they would say, faster, daddy, faster. I'd go, okay. So I'd go a little faster, and we'd get back up to the top, and they would go, no, daddy, even faster. So I wanted to impress my kids with how strong I could pull them. So I just took off running with that yard cart. And I'm running down the hill, and I'm just about to turn, make a hard left, and I turned it, and those yard carts, it just spilled over, and I dumped all their faces into the chain link fence. Then I just hear screams and cries, and Carly, to this day, I'm not kidding you, she had a knot on her left uh, uh, forehead here that was two inches high. To this day, she still has a little knot there, if you look closely. So just this indelible, and my boys have cuts on their lips and cuts in their nose. And just, I dump their face into a, into a chain link fence from the yard cart. Has anyone ever done that to you? I mean, metaphorically. Maybe spiritually. Maybe somebody you trusted and they should have known better. And you put your life in that person's hands. And the next thing you know, your face is in the chain link fence of life. And, and this woman has trusted these men. They're supposed to be trustworthy, but it turns out they're not. They're not trustworthy. And the, because they are, one, incompetent, and two, they're greedy. And then she hears that Jesus of Nazareth, a real healer, she's probably got a friend who either knew someone and saw that person get healed, literally just like an arm growing out, just an unbelievable thing, and somebody that she really trusts. And somebody who's like talking to her through the window of her house saying, oh, if you could have seen what Jesus of Nazareth did. And so these stories have filled up her ears and she has heard the stories and now her faith is peaked. Number two, Jesus is the healer of the broken. I think what we learn about Jesus is that Jesus loves broken people. Jesus loves broken people. His reaction to her is nothing like what the Pharisees and the rabbis would have been. Jesus is actually on his way to heal someone else. Jesus is on his way to heal uh, Jairus' daughter. Jairus has come. Now, who is he? He's a synagogue ruler. He's the PhD with theology. He's the pastor, the local pastor. Um, and he's, he has come before Jesus. Jesus is by the lake, and the crowds have swamped Jesus now. And he has come and bowed down before the Lord and said, Lord, please come heal my daughter. She is sick. Now, this woman's miracle happens as an interruption to that miracle. And that little girl who was on death's door does die. <laughs> and because this woman has reached out to Jesus and Jesus is the healer of the broken. It says again in verse 30, it says, At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Uh, verse 31, You see these people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And you can ask, Who touched me? So let's talk about her touch. So we noted that her touch made everyone she touched unclean. Now here she is and she has decided to venture out into forbidden territory. She has gone out of the house and now she's in the crowd and Jesus is there and she's pressing through the crowd and every person that she touches, every person that bumps into her or she bumps into or that she presses through or scooches out of the way, she makes them unclean. And then everyone they touch, they're unclean. And then everyone those people touch are unclean. You see what's spreading here is a ritual contagion. And so now she does something even worse. She comes to Jesus and she touches Jesus, the holy man. 
Now, in rabbinic literature, you are not supposed to do that. You are not supposed to touch a rabbi, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're an unclean woman. And she doesn't just touch the rabbi, she touches his kanafim. Now, I don't want nobody touching my kanafim this morning. <laughs> Let me tell you something. This is the corner of the garments. And the corner of his rabbinic robe is called the kanafim. And the kanafim has built into it what are called fringes or tassels. And these are commanded in Num Numbers chapter 15. Every Jewish, pious Jewish male is to wear this, uh, this robe or in the corners of their garments, these kanafim, they are to wear these tassels and those blue tassels signify their devotion to Torah. Now by Jesus' day, the Pharisees' tassels were long and flowing and you could see them coming a mile away because they were very into the pomp and tinsel of their position. They always wore their Sunday best, even on Monday. And you could see them coming a mile away. And so she comes and she finds Jesus and she finds the hem or the fringes or the tassels of his garment. And she grabs them believing that the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his kanafim, in his corners, in his wings. She believes that with all of her heart. And when she touches the holy man, she defiles him. Now, why has she bowed down before him after he outs her? He says, who was it? And everybody's like, oh, we, don't, we don't know. He's probably looking right at her. He's probably making eye contact with her. Who was it? Come out. He outs her. She finally comes before him and she kneels, it says, in terror. Why would she kneel in terror? Well, number one, it's apparent who she is. The crowd knows who she is. The crowd could turn on her and demand that she be stoned right there. And guess what? The rabbi can do that. And he could do the same thing. He could turn on her and say, how dare you defile this entire town? Stoned to death. He could call for that judgment upon her. But instead, he reaches out to her with mercy and grace, unimaginable compassion. And he heals her. And what does he call her? says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Who's the daughter of God? Jairus' daughter, the synagogue ruler, the pastor, the priest. She's called the daughter. And now here, Jesus says, nope, you're the daughter. You're the daughter of Abraham. You're a true daughter of God. So her faith was risky. She risked much to be there. Her desperation quotient has exceeded her misery quotient. And oftentimes I find myself wondering, man, why haven't you taken this to the Lord? And it's because my desperation factor hasn't exceeded my, uh, my misery factor. And sometimes it has to before I bring it to the Lord. Sometimes I think I can solve this problem. No, I, I can find a resource. I can get it solved, God. And God says, okay, when your desperation factor exceeds your fear factor of what other people will think of you, if they find out that you have this wound, this deep wound or sin in your life or this hurt in your heart, Jesus says, you will have that miracle. You will be cleansed. Her faith also demonstrated, is demonstrated by action. Now notice that the woman does not just say in herself. The text says she said in her own heart, if I could just touch the holiest part of his garment. She does not just mentally agree with that. Her faith is demonstrated 
by taking the risk, by putting faith to action. And she goes out there and presses through and finds Christ and touches him, whatever the cost. And then her faith seeks anonymity. Right after she receives this miracle in herself and she knows, I have been healed, yay. She's probably starting to think about all the trips to the market she can take now. Or actually going to synagogue and fraternizing with uh, everyone else or going to the festivals, which she hasn't been able to do for a dozen years. She's probably starting to think about all the things she can be free to do now. And Jesus calls her out and wants to put the spotlight on her. The last person in this story who wants to be known is her. She just wants to go on with her life. She wants to hide in anonymity. And this is what the crowd gives us. Anonymity keeps our secrets for us. Anonymity keeps our needs hidden. And Jesus wants to do this. Why? Because he wants to show everyone else. This woman too is a daughter of God. But here's what I want to show you. I want to show you what faith looks like. It's risky. Faith risks much to get to Jesus. Faith is a faith in Jesus, in his holiness. And though it seeks anonymity, sometimes God wants your story told so others can benefit from, from seeing you walk through it. I was thinking of this last week of Corey Ten Boom. Have you guys read her story? Oh, wow, Corey Ten Boom. I went back and I flipped through an old book that I think I read. I think I read this book like 20 years ago. And I have all these little highlighted passages in it of just her unbelievable service. For those of you who don't know, she was a Dutch watchmaker, part of a family. They were Dutch watchmakers uh, during World War II. And they were generational sympathizers with the Jews. Like they had just generationally helped the Jews. And so during the war, war, during the Jewish or Nazi persecution of Jews, uh, her family helped them. And, and provided aid and comfort to Jewish folks. And so they got arrested and hauled off to a concentration camp. She lost her older sister, Betsy, and she lost her father in a concentration camp. And the story of what they went through in the Nazi concentration camp is horrific. It's unreal. I mean, I read it partially because sometimes when you feel like you're suffering a lot, it just is cathartic to read someone who has suffered a thousand times more than you. I, that was selfish, I know, but I just had to do that. But as I'm flipping through the book, I read this story about, or I read a story about Cory Tim Boom. It's after this entire event. So she narrates the whole event. And then after the whole event, she is speaking at a church. And while she's speaking at a church, she is talking about the power of forgiveness, of releasing people and letting them go. And, and so it's a powerful sermon. And there's a man after the sermon who comes down the aisle and introduces himself. And as soon as she saw him, she knew who he was. He was one of the guards at uh, the internment camp who tortured her and her sister. He did not recognize her, but she recognized him immediately. And he walked right up to her and said, I noticed you mentioned that one internment camp. I used to be a guard there. And her blood went cold. He stuck out his hand and said, but ever since then, I've given my life to Christ. And I know that Jesus Christ has forgiven me of all of my sins and washed me clean. He says, but if I could just hear it from your lips. And she could not disavow the sermon, the powerful sermon of forgiveness she had just preached. So she very mechanically, woodenly, stuck out her hand to shake his hand. And when she did... She said a current of electricity cut through her arm and 
when their hands met, there was this warm power of the Holy Spirit which enveloped them both in forgiveness. Just the power of forgiveness, of mutual forgiveness. Just powerful. And she cried and he cried and they just cried it out. And I'm sitting there just crying, just reading this powerful story. And then it occurred to me, as I'm reading her story again, she longed for anonymity. When she got all the way back out of the internment camp, when she got all the way back to the Netherlands, in her city, in her hometown, Harlem, she longed for anonymity. She just wanted to help. She got re-engaged again, helping the Jews in the underground movement again. But God said, I know you long for anonymity, but I want to bring you into the light, Corey. Because I want millions upon millions of people to see the gospel in your life. The power of forgiveness through your story. And this happened 2,000 years ago too. This woman who craved to keep her secrets and keep her life in anonymity. Buried in the crowd. Jesus pulls her into the light so you and I can see a powerful, powerful image of God and his his people and their faith and their response to him. And so the part that I wrestle with the most in the story is not allowing my faith to just become an intellectual exercise. Because I'm an intellectual guy. I mean, I love to spend my entire day trying to solve puzzles. And Pastor Patrick and Ryan and uh, Daniel will tell you that I, I'm very much in my head when it comes to my faith. I like to think about my faith, and it fills me up. But God often challenges me. Jeff, you can't just think about your faith. It can't just be a mental issue or an exercise. You have to put it into practice. Demonstrate the genuineness of your faith by following Christ, reaching out to Christ, laying hold of Christ in desperate, risky faith. Will you pray with me? God, we're here today uh, pretty overwhelmed and astonished by the grace, the mercy, the compassion that you had for this daughter of God who was hurting in a way that most of us, the majority of us, could not fathom or understand. And yet you showed her power and compassion And God, there are people sitting here this morning. I can't possibly know every story behind their eyes. But you know what hurts. You know what their hearts are longing for. You know what the issues of the heart. And if you're here this morning and you just reached a point where you feel like you're at the bottom of your rope, the end of your rope, and the end of yourself, and it's time now for you to reach out and put your trust and your faith in Jesus, would you do it right now? Father, we confess what is true. We confess that we are sinners and that we are far from you and that we are headed for a Christless eternity. But we also confess the truth of your cross that you sent your one and only son to die for us on that cross so that we could be reconciled to you again. And so, Lord, we confess our belief in you and your cross and resurrection. And if you're here this morning, reach out. Don't wait. Don't wait till you get home. Don't wait till tonight. Right now, reach out with your heart and take hold of Christ, the Savior, the Healer, the Redeemer, the Son. Would you do it now? 
And Father, we devote ourselves, we give ourselves to you. Lord, the issues of our heart, the things that cause us to suffer, the things that cause us, Lord, to go without, Lord, we give those things to you right now when we pray that you, you alone, would meet all of our needs according to your glorious riches. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.